Would you turn to the book of Ruth, Joshua Judges Ruth, uh, Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons, Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons, uh, these took, sorry, Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malian Malon and Killian died so that the woman uh, was left without her two sons and her husband. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of His own inspired Word. Uh, If you keep your Bibles open, it's important that you follow through the text just to see some uh, nuances that perhaps are are hidden there. Uh, You will notice that the book of Ruth historically from verse 1 is set on the time in the time of the judges. That is the time between the conquest, the settling of the land under Joshua and the rise of the monarchy under King Saul and then King David, a period of some 420 years, uh, 1,200 years before the birth of Christ. Now, the time of the Judges is summed up in the very last verse of the book of Judges. And if you just look over the page, at least in my Bible, you might have to turn back a page in yours, uh, you see in verse 25 of the last book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The time of Judges was a time marked by anarchy and Uh, moral and spiritual declensions. In the book of Judges, you you have this this cycle of disobedience, of punishment or discipline, then of, of restoration or repentance, and then God raises up a judge to deliver them, and that is followed by a period of peace. So you have seven cycles, but it's not only secular, it's spiral, because in each cycle you're taken deeper and deeper into sin, and the people are taken further and further from God. Now, the explanation of the rebellion was very simple, because the people of God were a nomadic people, and they had wandered in the wilderness, you remember, for 40 years. And when they entered Canaan, they were Uh, unaccustomed to an agricultural way of life. Overnight, these wanderers in the wilderness had become settled farmers. Now, the Canaanites, the people of the land, were experienced agriculturists, and they worshipped the fertility god Beel Peor. And since the fertility of the soil was directly traceable to his sexual activity, So you, through worship, as the worshiper, tried to arouse the passions of this God so that fertility would come on the earth. So through um, immorality, through temple prostitution, you attempted to uh, arouse Baal so that fertility would come uh, on the earth. 
And so by observing their Canaanite neighbors, not only did they embrace their agricultural methods, but their agricultural practices as far as Beal Peor was concerned. Uh, When they engaged in this immoral worship, God then punished them, usually punished them by sending an invading army against them, but at times punished them through famine. And that was very appropriate because they had um, been disloyal to God and following after a fertility God, and the result of that unfaithfulness was infertility uh, in the, the land. A famine was sent by God. God shut the heavens. His punishment against them fitted the, the crime. Now, if you look at verse 1 uh, of the book of Ruth, we're told, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So, this, uh, the book of Ruth is set at a time of spiritual apostasy and spiritual unfaithfulness uh, against God. God was punishing them for their waywardness and their carelessness in terms of their relationship with Him. So that's a bit of the background to the book of Ruth. I want you to notice three things uh, this morning. First of all, the decision to move to Moab. You see that in verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The, The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Uh, Moving house is always a stressful uh, occasion, but migrating or emigrating to another country is very difficult indeed. And here we are introduced to a man, Elimelech, his wife Naomi, his two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they're a, a family on the move, and they're not moving simply to a new neighborhood, to a new town, to a new city. They're moving to a new country, the country of Moab. And the reason for the move is given for us there in verse 1. There was a famine in the land. Now they lived in Bethlehem. That is the same Bethlehem where David tended his sheep on the grassy hills outside that village, and it's the same Bethlehem where our Lord Jesus would later be led in a a manger. Now, there's a bit of irony here. They're from Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, and uh, uh, that was an indication of the fertility of the region. Um, and uh, Bethlehem and that surrounding area was the bread basket of Judah, and yet there was a, a famine. But that fertility had uh, disappeared. God was punishing His people, and a time of famine was in the land. And so Elimelech moves his family to the land of Moab in neighboring country some 50 miles south of Bethlehem. Now, we must ask ourselves what prompted that move to Moab. Now, obviously, there was the famine in the land, but we're looking behind that reason for spiritual reasons why he would move to the land of Moab. And the first of those is that he walked by sight and not by faith. 
You see, it's very important for us to understand that in Israelite thought, to forsake the land, to leave the land, was to forsake the covenant and to leave God. God had promised the land as an inheritance to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, That was reconfirmed to Moses. And you remember how God punished a whole generation in the wilderness for refusing to go and take possession of the land that he had promised. Now, some commentators are very sympathetic to Elimelech and his family. After all, they say, uh, had he not a responsibility to look after and provide for his family? Now, undoubtedly, um, uh, he had noble motives in seeking to provide for his family. But as Matthew Henry points out, if everybody had done what uh, Elimelech had done, the land would have been dispeopled. Added to that, you must remember that Moab was a country where they worshipped Chemosh, a god to whom human sacrifice was made. They were uh, also the traditional enemies of the people of Israel, and most recently, had conquered Jericho and dominated them for 18 years. Now, for Elimelech to migrate with his family and raise his sons in such an alien, godless, wicked culture, at the very least, was an act of spiritual recklessness. You may object and say, but uh, he had uh, a responsibility to provide for his family. But remember the words that David later penned in Psalm 37, 18 and 19. The days of the blameless are known to the Lord, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. Verse 25, I was young, says David, and now I am old, and I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Also, commentators point out that in in the first five verses, it's the only scene in the book of Ruth where the name of God is not mentioned. The inspired historian wants us to see that. He wants us to understand that, that God was not in their thoughts. You see, Elimelech walked by sight and not by faith. He ought to have stayed in the land that God had promised in the spirit of the Salvation Army officer in Shanghai in 1949 when said in his, uh, who said in his last telegram to 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 his headquarters before the communists arrived, I'm sitting in the premises and standing on the promises. Now, there are times that in our, our own spiritual lives where we experience a spiritual famine when things are difficult, when things are, are dry, when things are hard. Sometimes in church life, we experience a a famine of spiritual blessing. Sometimes God punishes us. Sometimes God tests us. Sometimes God withdraws from us. Now, it's the easiest thing in the world to toddle off to Moab rather than putting our trust in God. It's like uh, the president of Ukraine when President Biden uh, offered uh, to take him airlift him out. He said, it's not a ride that I want. He said, it's weapons. 
Well, it's not to flee that we want. It's, it's faith to trust in God in spite of the difficulty and the unfolding uh, circumstances. The writer to the Hebrews tells us faith is things hoped for, things unseen. Sometimes we have to say to ourselves, I can't understand why I feel like this, why I feel dry and barren and stretched and why I'm facing all these difficulties. But help me, O oh God, to trust in you in spite of my feelings, in spite of the difficulties. See, in our difficulties, we can endure our trials with a, a stoic resolution, but that can leave us bitter and hard. We can escape our trials like a limelech. We can run from them. But often in running from them, we are running from God. Or we can employ our trials or enlist our trials so that they work for us to lead us into a deeper dependence upon God. Warren Wearsby says, often our difficulties are stepping stones to a deeper faith and trust in God. So he walked by sight and not by faith. And secondly, he lived for the physical and not the spiritual. There's evidence in the book of Ruth that Elimelech was a very well-to-do individual. In verse 2, we're told that his family were Ephrathites. Now, there's historical evidence that an Ephrathite was a member of the local aristocracy. Ephra was the ancient name for the area in which Bethlehem stood. And to be called an Ephrathite meant to be part of the, the uh, uh, family that uh, first settled and established themselves in that area, a respected member of the community. And though, indeed, we know the family of Boaz from later in the book, who was a relation of Elimelech, was uh, from a wealthy background, a land own, uh, owner with many harvesters working for him. When we add to that the words of Naomi when she returned to Bethlehem in verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back uh, empty, uh, indicates her uh, and Elimelech's prosperity. So you see, for Elimelech to migrate to Moab, it wasn't a question of life or death, or of starvation and uh, survival. He, he was wealthy, but he didn't want to use or employ that wealth to sustain him. He was trying to protect his financial resources and hang on to his wealth. He was putting the material before the spiritual, his riches before his relationship with God. When you think about it, he was prepared to separate himself from the tabernacle where God revealed himself where sacrifices were offered to atone for sin, where, uh, he, uh, uh, where he was uh, prepared to remove himself from, separate himself from the great feast days in Israel and, and, and move to a, a, a culture that was pagan. To put it in modern terms, he was gripped by the madness of materialism and was prepared to suffer spiritually and to put his... Uh, family into a state of vulnerability, spiritual vulnerability, than to let go of any of his, his riches. There's an old Scottish proverb that says it's more difficult to carry a full cup than an empty one. It takes great grace to carry great wealth, and very few do that successfully. 
Moses warned the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verses 13 and 14, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. Stories told of a Mississippi paddle boat that sprung a, a leak and uh, it was carrying a number of wealthy people and uh, a lot of gold up the Mississippi and the wealthy people jumped uh, overboard and swam to the shore saving their lives. But two crew members took the gold and they filled their pockets, they filled their socks, they filled their trousers, they filled their jumper and jumped overboard. And, uh, and they sunk to the bottom and to a watery grave. And I suppose at any uh, moment they could have shed the, the, the gold and floated back to the surface, but they were unwilling to let that gold go. And that's what happened to Elimelech. His riches meant too much for him, and he parted with God rather than part with them. This world meant more to him than the world to come. Why are we guilty of that sin? Do we love things more than we love God? Do, does our love of things interfere with our, our love of God? Have we neglected things spiritually in order that we might acquire things materially? That the reason that we work all the hours that we work and have to sacrifice public worship and our times of prayer as a church is not because we need more, but because we have the wrong priorities. As John Bunyan says, we need to hold the things of this world with a light hand. The decision to migrate to Moab. Secondly, notice the declension in, my, in, in moving to Moab. There's evidence in these verses to indicate that Elimelech was well aware of the dangers, initially at least, of moving to a wicked and godless culture. If you look at verse 1, we're told that uh, in the ESV that he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. The NIV says he went to live for a while in the country of Moab. In other words, the, the move was temporary. Wycliffe uh, translates that he went to pilgrim in Moab. Moab didn't intend to put his roots down to make his home in Moab. It was, it was temporary. It was for a while. It was to sojourn in the land of Moab. Uh, in the original, we're told quite explicitly that Elimelech not only moved to Moab, but he moved to the fields of Moab. You see, you see in verse 1 it says that he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And then at the end of verse to, it says he went into the country of Moab. Now, if you're using the NIV, that's a bit lost. But uh, the word country there uh, in verse 1 and in verse 2, it's two different words. Now, we use country in that way, don't we? We talk about our country, our wee country, Northern Ireland. But we also talk about moving out into the country, into a, a rural area. And you see at the end of verse 2, when we're told that he went into the country of Moab and remained there, 
It's, it's that other word that means um, the, the rural rather than the urban. It's uh, some versions translated that he went to live in the fields of Moab. In other words, he knew the dangers of the culture. And so he wanted to protect his family, and rather than move them into a town or a, a village, he decided to isolate them in, in the country. He, he tried, tried to build in protections for his family. Now, do you notice the change there at the end of verse 2? It says, they went into the country of Moab, into the fields of Moab, and remained there. You see the progression? He went to sojourn. He went to live for a while, but he remained there. Uh, the NIV says he lived there two weeks. He, uh, the authorized version says he continued there weeks still. The New Living Translation says he settled there. The ESV says he remained there. When he arrived, his intention was to stay just for the period of the famine. But he sensed acceptance. He made, uh, entered into relationships with the people. And uh, his original intention of returning was postponed, and he stayed. Now, added to that, we find his two sons, Malin and Killian, uh, taking for themselves Moabite wives, something that was strictly forbidden in the Old Testament law, that they were not to intermarry with the, the people who surrounded them. So do you see the progression, the spiritual declension in leaving the land? His intention was not to stay, but to get relief from the famine. They settle in Moab, in the country, rather in the town. But he begins to put his roots down, uh, and, uh, and then eventually his two sons marry Moabite uh, women. My sins like that. Sins progressive. It's usually not with the big temptation that Satan steals our hearts from God, but it's this gradual progression into sin that takes us away from God. I was reading in the paper when I was in uh, America of um, this woman who uh, was um, on one of those uh, airbeds uh, just out in the sea, and uh, she fell asleep, and she was found five miles off the coast by the Coast Guard, clinging to this lino, lino. Uh, she had drifted imperceptibly from the shore. And that's how often our hearts are taken from God. It's, it's this slow build-up, this gradual neglect. We begin by neglecting our prayer time and our, our quiet time, those private moments with God. That leads to our neglect of public worship. We're not as faithful in our attendance as we once were. The prayer meeting no longer is a priority for us. Uh, and then Sunday evening drops off, and then Sunday morning eventually goes. This, this gradual drifting from God. When I was uh, young, my father, my family loved heat. You know, they loved heat. And they, they all, my father always had the central heat and blazing at a ridiculous temperature. And I would go into the boiler and I would turn it down 
and then the family would complain and it would be turned back up again. And I discovered that if you turned it down gradually, they got accustomed to the drop in temperature and you got it to a place that was bearable without them even recognizing it. Well, that's what happens to us spiritually. It's this gradual, this imperceptible drifting. Sin is subtle. Sin is progressive. And if you don't want to eat the forbidden fruit, you've got to stay out of the garden. Sometimes we think we are stronger uh, than we actually are. So the decision to, uh, to move to Moab, the declension in moving to Moab, and then the discipline administered for moving to Moab. Now, we don't like that word discipline, but discipline is a positive thing. You think of the uh, proverbs uh, that are given to us in, in the Bible that encourage uh, particularly fathers, to discipline their children, to correct their children. Discipline isn't negative. Discipline is positive. The writer to the Hebrews uh, picks that up and says, as a father punishes his children, so the Lord disciplines those that he loves, that he disciplines because he loves. Now, notice the discipline that the Lord meets out here. First of all, we're told that the two boys, Malon uh, Malon and Killian die. Now, both those names are difficult to translate. Malon means to be sick, and Killian means to feel or to fade. Now, evidently, these two boys were sickly and weak, and both eventually die. According to verse 3, Elimelech himself dies and is buried in Moab. Notice that he's buried in Moab. Remember what happened to Joseph. When Joseph died in Egypt, his bones were, were brought back to the promised land. It's, it's an indication that he's buried in Moab of his spiritual declension. Now, God, it's uh, clear, was punishing them. He, he was um, um, uh, correcting them. He, through this experience, was bringing this family back to himself. Now, evidently, uh, Naomi understood it in that way because she says in verse 21, when she arrives back uh, to Bethlehem, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So she sees this the, the, these hardships as a, a divine intervention from God to restore her and ultimately the family to himself. Now, I don't want to sound like um, a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher this morning. You know, this kind of idea that uh, if you're sick before you're 70, there's something spiritually wrong with you. After 70, you can fall to bits and, uh, and nobody... Uh, bats an eye, but I don't want to sound like that. But, but the Bible does teach that God does correct us, and God does speak to us through our trials. And sometimes He puts us on our backs that we might look up to Him and acknowledge Him and renew our relationship with Him. And what I'm saying is, Yes, it's, it's true that God does send trials to test us. That's the message of the whole book of Job. He, he sends trials to improve us and deeper our 
deepen our knowledge and experience of Him. Sometimes He prunes us that we will have increased fruitfulness. But sometimes He does discipline us that we might renew our relationship with Him. C.S. Lewis, you remember that famous quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but He shouts to us in our pains. And sometimes through the, the difficulties, He's tapping us on the shoulder and He's saying, remember me. Remember me. You've forgotten me. You've pushed me out of your life. You've pushed me to one side. And I no longer have that um, priority in, in your life. God does discipline us. He disciplines those that He loves. And thank God He does. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, says the hymn writer. And we know that there is that tendency in us to drift gradually and imperceptibly at times, but there, there is that tendency. But every now and then, God uh, brings us up short and He says, remember me. And we can readjust our spiritual priorities and we can put Him first in our lives. And maybe some of you aren't Christians this morning and you're not converted and you have no experience of God. And, and maybe it's through your trials and your difficulties and the present hardships that you're facing that God is speaking into your life and he's calling you to faith in him. So the decision to migrate to Moab, the declension in moving to Moab, and the discipline for moving to Moab. Amen.